Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute. Hello and welcome again to this episode of the Out of the Question podcast, where today's question is this. Is climate change a hoax? Now, let me define hoax. A hoax can be defined as a trick or to trick someone into believing or accepting as genuine something false and often preposterous or something done for deception or mockery. Well, many of my listeners would fall into the category of those who are opposed to the Green New Deal and will assert that certain of its advocates are naive at best or even idiotic in their thinking. However, these same listeners are not necessarily equipped to have a balanced view of the subject, thus making it an either-or proposition, a false dichotomy, if you will. Well, my guest today is going to provide a balanced view. His name is Patrick J. Michaels. He's a senior fellow with the Competitive Enterprise Institute and the CO2 Coalition. He was previously the director of the Center for the Study of Science at the Cato Institute. He was a research professor of environmental sciences at the University of Virginia for three decades and the Virginia State Climatologist for 27 years. He has served as president of the American Association of State Climatologists and he was the program chair for the Committee on Applied Climatology of the American Meteorological Society. Pat has published numerous articles on climate or its impact in peer-reviewed scientific literature and is the author of nine books on climate, its effects, and science itself, including his newest, Scientocracy, published by Cato Books. And he co-authored the Climate Paper of the Year, awarded by the Association of American Geographers back in 2004. He holds AB and SM degrees in biology and biological sciences from the University of Chicago and a PhD in ecological climatology from the University of Wisconsin at Madison. Now, how did I get Pat Michaels to agree to be on my podcast? Well, he also happens to be married to my daughter and is thus my son-in-law. Welcome, Pat. Good to be with you, Andrea. So, Pat, you are anything but a newcomer to this topic. I have seen video clips of you mixing it up on various news programs, friendly and unfriendly ones, and you most definitely hold your own. In fact, you told me you were the first climatologist to be canceled by the cancel culture. What's it like to have that prestige designation? Well, it's so funny because uh, it's something that happens over time and you expect it. Uh, and it, it, only after it happens do you realize what was going on. Well, in an age of digital media, few people go beyond headlines when it comes to espousing their views on the environment and don't always dig deeper into the specifics or the data when it comes to this issue. So before I let you go and talk about the status quo and your take on it, please define for us weather, climate, ecology, and the environment so we can discuss your perspective on this issue based on a common set of definitions. So what's the difference between weather and climate? Uh, well, weather is what you see every day. And in another way, climate is what you expect to see every day. Weather changes from day to day climate can change over much longer periods of time. Uh, and uh, which other ones do you want to go to? Uh, ecology and environment. The environment is everything that surrounds that which is living. And ecology is the relationship of living things with each other and their environment. How did this subject get so politicized as Calcedon's founder, R.J. Rush Jr. wrote a book, The Politics of Guilt and Pity. Do you think 
climate change and the whole rhetoric we hear now is intended to make certain people feel guilty and other people feel fearful? Well, let's go back to the culture of atmospheric science and climate science. They are relatively new disciplines. There wasn't much serious climate science until about 100 years ago. And it's not surprising that the disciplines were highly militarized. There's always been a very strong military component in both climate and weather. And if you think about it, it's kind of natural, especially when such information might be kind of hard to come by. And, and as a result, the political process has always been interfering in this issue. It shouldn't surprise you that the major climate change initiatives related to carbon dioxide came from the Department of Energy in the Carter administration uh, and from the Department of Defense with the uh, DARPA projects that go back to the RAND Corporation 50 years ago. It's always been there and it's always going to be there. And to give you an example, it's not just us. I work with and I criticize these various climate models. There is not one mainstream general circulation model that has any private funding. It's all funded by governments around the world. So why is that significant? Well, because governments have opinions uh, and governments like power. And if you really want to have a lot of control over people, well, you might try controlling the way that they live their life via the energy that is necessary for them to live their life. And I believe that's one of the points of contention in this issue. Unfortunately, governments don't have wisdom. They have power. And the two are very different things. And so in the realm of climate and in other areas, governments can espouse and enforce and direct policies that really aren't very good ideas. Nor are they necessarily good science. Now, I was one of those people who did pay attention when I was in school to biology. And I was under the impression that CO2 was a good thing because plants take in CO2 and then give us oxygen in return. And so how did CO2 become the bad guy as opposed to part of an ecosystem that makes it so that we can live on this earth? Well, that uh, go back to what we just talked about, the constant interposition of government in the weather and climate issue turned it from being a good guy Oh, when research first started in this area in the late 19th century, it was thought that, well, yeah, putting more carbon dioxide in the air might warm it up a little bit. And wouldn't that be a great thing? People could live in places where they can't live now and grow things where they can't grow things now. It was only until the period beginning around the late 1970s that it became a bad thing. And that's because it's actually a true story. A person who will remain nameless, one late holiday evening, sent an email to all his friends, only he sent it to the wrong group of people, and I got it. Whereupon he was bragging about how they convinced James Schlesinger, the Carter administration energy secretary, to go to the president and push for nuclear power because of the carbon dioxide problem. Well, obviously we never got the nuclear power, but we still got the politics of the carbon dioxide problem. So I mentioned earlier that people have not really dived into this issue if they are not scientifically motivated or oriented. But about two years ago, I read a book by a Michael Schallenberger called Apocalypse Never. And he pointed out that if you miss the financial interests of various sources of energy and how it plays out into this, you miss a very important component. Would you talk about that? Yeah, well, Schellenberger's very interesting. I recommend his book. He took an awful lot of ideas that I've written in several books over the course of decades, 
and kind of put them in one place. He is more of a nuclear power advocate than I am, though one of my questions when a person tells me how worried they are about climate change, and I ask them what they think about nuclear power, and if they say, oh, no, we can't have that, well, then I know they're not serious. Because as Schellenberger says, and as many of us have said, if you really want to have a society that doesn't emit carbon dioxide, you have to have a source of energy that's a dense and strong source of energy that doesn't emit carbon dioxide, and nuclear is one of those. He points out in the book, and I'm sure you've seen this in the decades you've been involved, how Hollywood has made movies to convince people that nuclear energy is bad and pushed things that were contrary to nuclear energy. But now we're to a point where almost nothing is going to be good that works. Yeah, Hollywood really certainly had a role in it, and it was very fortuitous. When Three Mile Island, had a minor, very minor problem with its cooling system and shut down like it was supposed to, emitted very little radiation into the atmosphere. Well, the movie The China Syndrome with Jane Fonda in it happened to be playing around the country and it was the perfect propaganda show. And so that just ensconced in the population's mind that nuclear power was a horrible thing. Well, it seems to me that the advocates of the Green New Deal and things associated with it don't really have a sense that man can solve problems through the private and free markets. And as I watched a lot of your interviews going back to 2008, you were calling for innovation rather than coercion in terms of new forms of energy. And you kept advocating and presenting a thesis that the free market rights a lot of wrongs that exist rather than creates them. Talk about that, if you will. Well, the reason for that is that the future belongs to those who are efficient. If you produce things efficiently, or you produce things that are more efficient than other things, you're advantaged in the marketplace. So if you kind of just leave everything alone, I, I I can't see specifically the future, but I can certainly envision that I have no understanding of what the energy world will be like 100 years from now. But if you look back 100 years ago, it's certainly not going to be anything like it is now. And we should respect the historical tendency for increasingly dense energy We go from, you know, we started with wood, and then we went to coal, and then we went to oil, and then we went to nuclear, if you will. You can see the progression there. Well, the problem with the so-called renewable movement, meaning solar energy and wind and all those good things, is they go against history. They are distributed energy systems. They're unstable because they're distributed. It's just, it's just a bad idea to go along with this new Green New Deal. And we're, we're starting to see around the world very high energy prices and winter's coming. And that's when we burn a lot of things to keep us warm. The chickens are coming home to roost and people are leaving places with bad energy structures. People are leaving California. Industry is leaving Germany in the heart of Europe because their energy has become too expensive and too unreliable. I say, you know, get with history. And history will tell you that you really need to have dense energy systems that are easy to regulate rather than dispersed ones like solar and wind that you can't regulate. So when you say dense that you can regulate, you don't mean government regulation. You mean that you can manage Whereas with solar and wind, if you have no wind, you have no wind energy. And if the sun doesn't come out very often or during certain periods, you have no solar energy. So why do you think these people are advocating for it? Do you think they are trying to make it so that people are less free to move and to live and to go about their lives? There's probably that component, but the other component is that a lot of the people pushing things like the Green New Deal 
are technologically and numerically illiterate. If you do the math and you realize how much backup storage you have to have for a society powered on wind and solar, because the sun doesn't shine at night and the wind doesn't blow all the time, it becomes a physically impossible problem. And by the way, we don't have any battery technology that can cover a dispersed grid like solar and wind. We just don't have it. And there's no sign we're going to have it in the foreseeable future. And there's no sign that it's economical. So I I can imagine, and I sometimes fall into this category myself, saying, well, then we're doomed if the, if the, the reins of the horse are in, contr- are in the hands of people who are not making a lot of sense, what hope is there for people to procure energy on their own? Well, what's going to happen, and I think this winter uh, we are going to see more and more stories on this, is uh, people are going to realize that the Green New Deal and green power and all this stuff is just a fantasy. There's probably going to be a great retrenchment when the lights go out. And I can assure you that the lights will go out in the near future. So you've been active on exploring this issue and related issue. Talk a little bit about your new book, Scientocracy, and why you felt it needed to be written. Well, Scientocracy is a book about the general malaise that has affected science increasingly in recent decades. And the subtitle of the book is The Delicate Balance Between Public Science and Public Policy. I got into it because I'm a climate scientist, and I saw how my field was being politicized, how the science itself was being manipulated by small groups of people that colluded with journal editors to keep certain papers that were perfectly fine papers out of the peer-reviewed literature. And I thought to myself, well, I'll bet this just isn't happening in climate science. And so I called a few of my apparently few friends who are interested in this, and we decided to put together a book on the many areas of science that behave just like climate science. And it turns out there are many. At any rate, what happened in climate science with, you know, certain area points of view, inconvenient points of view being given a very difficult time or very little airing or governments misusing climate science for their own policy ends. Well, this happens in a very large number of fields. And I was surprised going into the literature, how many I found uh, and how pervasive it is. Let me give you an example, if I could. Sure. We were talking about nuclear power a a few moments ago. If I asked you or any of your listeners, where is the largest uranium deposit in North America? You'd probably say Colorado or somewhere out west where the geology has exposed it. No, it's in southern Virginia. It's about 180 miles by air due south of Washington, D.C., and it's on private property. It's, a, it's an interesting story about how it was discovered, but the private property is owned by a family that's been there for like 250 years. And they wanted to exploit their private property. We do have mineral rights in this country. And the price of uranium had gone up to a point where it would be very, very profitable for Mr. Walter Coles to mine his uranium and sell it on the market. And he even, uh, his son even said, oh, we're going to do this the right way, he told me. He said, we're going to go to the National Research Council part of the National Academy of Sciences, and have them produce a report on how to do this right. And I thought to myself, oh boy, you you don't know what you just stepped into when you did that. Oh, and by the way, he had to pay for the report. And you know what the report said? It said, you can't mine uranium in Virginia. Do you know why? 
because of the weather. And I thought, oh, that's odd. And said, because there's floods and things like that. Who was the person cited for all that work on Virginia's weather? Well, it happened to be the Virginia State Climatologist, i.e. me. So some, some innocent documents that I produced as state climatologist on historic floods in Virginia were generalized uh, to apply to this area in Southern Virginia that doesn't have the topography or anything that could support such flooding. So Mr. Walter Coles saw this report by the National Research Council. It was leaked to the New York Times to appear above the fold on the front page. How many times do we know this game and have we seen this game that it's going to be impossible to mine uranium in Virginia because the weather threat. And then they also decided there was a tectonic threat. So I looked at earthquake history around where uh, this deposit is. And it's one of the most stable regions on the entire East Coast, which itself is very, very stable compared to where you live. Right. So do you think that because the general population trusts science trust the scientists that stories like you just told can seem like okay that's just an exception oh yeah our our government would never withhold valuable sources of energy from us okay well let's just try another one it turns out that the logical model that is used to regulate chemicals carcinogens and ionizing radiation in the environment is wrong and Pretty much everybody that's looked at it seriously knows that it's wrong. It's something called the linearity no-dose threshold model. It holds that the first photon of ionizing radiation is as capable of causing cancer as the billionth or jillionth, if, if I could. Well, that's obviously absurd. We would have to be adapted to things in our environment that are ubiquitous in our environment. If you you want to see how wrong that proposition is, think about ionizing radiation that you see pretty much every day, especially in California, which is sunlight. You need the ionizing radiation of sunlight to synthesize vitamin D. In large amounts, if you go around without sunscreen and expose yourself to the sun, well, yeah, you're going to get pretty bad sunburn and ultimately get some type of skin cancer. But here's the point. We take advantage of things in our environment that are beneficial in small doses and are harmful in large doses. But the model that the computer, that the governments use around the world is that even the smallest dose is dangerous. How silly is that? How much has that cost us? Nobody's ever calculated it because it's a very, very, very large number. So this goes back to the responsibility individuals have to go beyond headlines and summaries. I know one of the things, I believe it was in Schallenberger's book, where he talked about if you look at a statistic and you just hear the statistic without examining the actual study, sometimes you're going to find out the study said just the opposite of what the summary indicates. That's absolutely correct. Anytime you read that some study has come out that says, you know, the world's going to come to an end tomorrow unless we do this or this or that. You ought to go look at the study and read it carefully. Nowadays, journal editors are requiring more and more that authors produce what's called a plain English version and a what it means paragraph or chapter. And in there, you will usually find that there might be something a little bit wrong with this. For example, let's talk about my favorite issue, the issue of climate change. If you run a general circulation climate model, and there are about 30 of those around the world today, again, all sponsored by governments, none by anything private, and you just put increased carbon dioxide in them, invariably they will produce far more warming than has been observed. I don't know how many people know that. And so what is done to compensate for that is to put in another compound in the models 
the aerosols that come from industrial activity and posit that they cool the atmosphere in such a way that if we fiddle these knobs, one carbon dioxide into the so-called aerosol knob, we can fit the temperature history of the 20th century. So that's what's going on. And when, when people realize, wait a minute, this model was tuned, as they say, to get the right answer. It didn't get the right answer on its own. It's not really much different than putting in a little bit more sulfuric acid in your college chemistry experiment to get the right answer. And in fact, there's, there's quite a literature on this right now where it shows that every one of these computer models is tuned and they're making massive errors. Hey, Andrea, here's a story for you. Sukuyo Manabi from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Lab, and he has a courtesy appointment at Princeton University. He just got the Nobel Prize in physics. It's the first climate modeler that got the Nobel Prize. And the Nobel Committee said it's because you could accurately reproduce and forecast the behavior of climate and socially significant issues. Well, I looked at Manabi's model. It's, you can, there are actually catalogs of all these computer models. And of all the models there are in this particular catalog, which is a Department of Energy catalog called CMIP-5, it's the worst. <laughs> it produces seven times I didn't say seven-tenths of a degree. I said seven times as much warming as is being observed in the upper atmosphere in the tropics. And that's a very, very important and critical place climatically. That one got the Nobel Prize. Well, why? Well, probably the committee reflects primacy. Manabi had, I think, the most widely known and first of the large public models. So we'll give him a prize. Never mind the fact that it's the worst of all of them. And that's after it's been improved for 40 years. When they start, when, when Manabi and Weatherall started out in 1980 and 1975, they were very candid in their papers. In one of them, they changed the brightness of clouds that, so that the Earth would warm up more because if they just let their model run, the Earth became five degrees colder than it is. And then that would make an ice age. In another paper, they said, oh, well, we're just going to increase the solar constant, the amount of sun hitting the top of the atmosphere by about 7%. Ah, and that'll work out fine. That's equivalent to moving the Earth several million miles closer to the sun, I might point out. So let me just ask you this. Is it true that who pays for the research gets the answer they want? Of course. How? how how silly if you don't understand that. That's because of the, the, the incentive structure in the academy and major research universities. I can tell you it's the science departments and the engineering departments that are paying for the Germanic studies and art departments. And the, the way that works is a federal research grant, and you can't do climate research without federal money because those are the only people who support it. There's a contract with the university where the university adds on 50%, and it's called overhead, and the university can spend that as it will. So if I apply for a million dollars in research funding uh, on climate, there's a multiplier put in there, and all of a sudden that application becomes one and a half million dollars or something like that. To give you an idea of how fungible that money is, it went to panel the Stanford University yacht. And Donald Kennedy, president of Stanford at the time, was called in front of Congress and asked about this. And he said some things. And, you know, he wasn't president of Stanford much longer. Instead, he was given another job, which was the editor of Science Magazine. That's the most important scientific and technical gateway probably in the world. So, you know, misspend government money and go from being a president of a university to a czar of science. Such a world, huh? 
We see that in medicine. You have people who work for the administration or the government. They retire. They end up working for a pharmaceutical company. They might go back and work for the FDA or the CDC. And so, again, since I tend to realize that the corruption will have to end at some point, how do you see this being positively resolved? I'm not as uh, optimistic as you are about it. I mean, people ask me, well, what do we do about the fact that, you know, there's all this hysteria about climate? Uh, and my answer is very simple. Cut off the funding for the research. That'll stop it. We actually had an example of that happen in Australia not many years ago. Australia's science establishment is very, very centralized. Uh, there's this one organization called the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization, CSIRO, that funds everything. And they fund, uh, fund all the climate work in Australia. And there's quite a bit of it. And of course, the climate scientists in Australia are as political as the climate scientists in the United States are. And uh, hint, they are not of Trumpian persuasion to say the least. And so they have been going around saying, you know, we know that the climate's going to warm up this much. And unless we do something about it, the world's going to come to an end. We know this to be true. And so when Abbott became the prime minister, he looked at this and he read all these things and he said, oh, wow, we can save a lot of money. We're spending tons of money on this climate research. They don't need it. They told us that they've got the answer. And they know what's going to happen. My and my and my, you think maybe a hue and cry all of a sudden came up from the climate science community? Oh, no, no, no. We didn't mean it. There's, there's lots more stuff we got to study. No, no, no. We, we didn't mean that. So that's my point. That is an example of what you need to do. If people start exaggerating things and say they know everything, cut off their funding. If they're so good and they're so smart, they can go on to another problem, I assure you. Right. But I think it's more basic than that. I think a lot of people think that just cutting off the funding would mean cutting off the funding source. And there's obviously a lot of corruption. There's a lot of blackmail that probably is very much pervasive in most governments. But I think the important part to realize is that the whole idea of we're all going to be dead in 12 years if we don't adopt this new policy is based on fear and fear to a people who don't understand and will just respond to the fear mongering that comes out of press conferences and the media will begin to feel guilty that they have things and other places in the world do not. And I think uh, Cal Beisner, who I know you're affiliated with, makes the point that we're supposed to feel bad when America or Western countries do well. And so it seems to be that the MO is to make it so we do less well, so we're just like everybody else. Well, there's a lot of truth in what you're saying, but you did make a fundamental error uh, in your assumption when you said we only have 12 years left. Those statements were made two years ago. Oh, that's right. So you have so 10 that, years that, that left. Down to 10. You know, this is, this is such a remarkable story, uh, especially out in California, where the government is just nuts about this kind of stuff. The temperature of the surface of the earth has warmed up. It's about a, a little under a degree Celsius, warmer than it was in 1900. And between 1900 and now, in the industrialized world, life expectancy doubled. And the amount of per capita wealth has gone up 12-fold. That happened while the planet warmed. I'm not saying it happened because the planet warmed, but the warming sure didn't prevent it. And so now comes this crazy idea that if it warms up just a little bit more, the United Nations people who aren't climate people at all, but they're political people, say if the warming gets to one and a half degrees, 
That's just a half a degree beyond where it is. Oh, horrible things are going to happen. Now, what kind of story is that? The temperature goes up a degree over 120 years. Wealth goes all around the Western world. Life expectancy doubles. People have much better lives, at least physically, than they had in the year 1900. And if we just warm it up a little bit more, that's all going to go away. That's absurd. That half a degree is the difference in temperature that you would get between moving from Washington, D.C. to Fredericksburg, Virginia, or 50 miles. And, you know, I don't see, though some of my friends might disagree, that the culture in Fredericksburg is gone downhill completely compared to Washington, D.C. It just doesn't work that way. We live in a temperature range, humans, from, I'm going to speak Celsius because that's the way we do it, from minus 40 C to plus 40 C. That's from minus 40 F, minus 40 C and minus 40 F are the same, on up to about 120 degrees Fahrenheit. And we prosper. Think about the Inuit culture in the high latitudes of the Northern Hemisphere. They're living and prospering. They've been around there for a long time. They're in an extremely cold environment. The early American cultures in the Southwest were in extremely hot environments. This is a pretty adaptable species. And to say that if you move the temperature a half a degree, all of a sudden, all heck is going to break loose is simply an absurdity. And again, this goes back to give a headline, give a sound bite, then people are going to be swayed by it. And so I think the answer, and I don't think it's a quick answer, is for people to understand the issues and then not feel compelled that they have to be green. Um, everything is green in California. It's, yeah. We have to go green. And our governor said that by, I think it was 2030, no more cars that run on gas. Meanwhile, we keep having energy crises. So how are the people who plug in their cars for energy supposed to do it? How, how is it going to work? Uh, have all electric cars and you don't have enough energy available to charge them every night? Well, I right. guess they're not going to run. Actually, what's really going to happen is people aren't going to buy them. This is not the first time that California has mandated a certain number of electric vehicles. This goes back 30 years. And each time they do it, cynics like me say, well, you can't actually do that. Uh, we don't have the technology. Each time they do it, they push back the mandate. I'm watching uh, Boris Johnson in the United Kingdom, who seems to be a really sensible person, except his young wife is a very radical greenie. And all of a sudden, he's gone nuts on climate change. And uh, in the parliamentary governments, the prime minister has a lot more power than, say, does the president of the United States, except the current one that doesn't think, if he can think, that there is a constitution. He just right. says things by fiat. But Boris Johnson announced this net zero option by 2050, meaning that the UK will emit no net carbon dioxide by 2050. And they're serious about it. They've started this, and they have already seen that they are, uh, by shuttering coal plants and putting in all this unreliable wind, that they're having real power problems and the price of energy is going through the roof. So what, what you get out of this, you know, you can, you can talk is cheap, but doing things the right way sometimes is either expensive or perhaps impossible. And that's what's going on with the Green New Deal. I don't yeah. think anybody would like that world. No, I think most people who are critical of the status quo and how bad America is or how bad the West is, if you gave them a choice, okay, you could be born at any time, you could be born in any place. I think most people would still pick the West, specifically the US. And so I, I'm hoping, and this is where I believe that um, the future is going to be for people to understand how the game has been rigged in so many areas and that we're encouraging young people 
to be innovative, to be free market people. And when this structure that's bound to fail, and you said it will, number one, because it's untenable and it's not even based on the findings of science, that we'll see emerging better things so that when we look back 100 years from now, they'll say, wow, they went through a time where uh, they, I guess they just weren't thinking. I, I, I would presume that would be the case. I mean, it's very rare that uh, a society commits suicide. Obviously, you know, there are cults and things like that that do funny things, but societies in general don't like to do this uh, or they make terrible mistakes. I mean, we have seen in the course of history governments that abuse and manipulate science for truly nefarious ends. And I simply draw your attention to the history of the 20th century. But in general, there is a correction mechanism as long as everything is not a dictatorship. And one of the things that we have to hope is that one side of the political community seems to be really bent on taking everything over and assuring it always has its way. And I'm not going to put any labels on it. All you have to do is turn on the television set or turn on your computer and watch something that's not the legacy networks. And you will find out about this. I think the most dangerous thing that could prevent us from self-correcting and riding the ship are the forces that want to essentially take over the country in a unidirectional or perhaps totalitarian way. And so for the Christian, again, who primarily those are people who are listening to this podcast, are hopeful because we know that if you base what you're doing on truth rather than lies, that God blesses it. And I'm hoping, Pat, that there are more people who think in terms of truth rather than being persuaded by who's giving them money, that there are a group of young climatologists who are emerging who will see that we don't have to have a doom and gloom perspective for the future. Are you running into people who think like you, who are younger than you? There are a couple, but they are very few and far between because you are told in graduate school that the most important thing to do is to get research funding so that you can publish enough papers to get tenure. That whole process ensures that science is going to be distorted. Let's talk about climate science. If I wrote a paper and said, well, there's a lot of evidence that the world's not coming to an end, and maybe this whole global warming thing was overblown, I guarantee you those, those papers will go out for peer review. The paper would be rejected because the peer reviewers have a vested interest in making sure it's rejected because they've built their careers on this notion. You know, this is, this is no paranoid thing. I'm not the first person to point out this problem. However, if I wrote a paper that said, well, 3 billion people are going to die in the next 30 years from global warming unless we stop our emissions of carbon dioxide immediately, that paper would be accepted with very, very little revision. A story on it would appear uh, above the fold on the front page of the New York Times, you know, world to end in 30 years or something like that. Right. Uh, and so there are such incentives incredible uh, professional incentives to not say the truth, to go along, to get with the funding stream, that it's somewhat discouraging. That's all I can say. So let me say this. Maybe I can encourage you a little bit. I've said over and over again, since university by and large isn't going to allow alternative views, certainly not state institutions or even private institutions that receive money from federal government, what would your advice be to somebody who's very interested in the things you're interested in? Would you recommend that they go to these institutions to be educated? Or do you think there's another way that they can get the necessary education as opposed to the propagandized education? Well, unfortunately, 
These days, you have to do it through a major research university. That gives you a credential to speak. And that, that is a very daunting task for a person to do that and get away with it. Now, I didn't speak out publicly very much on climate change until I was promoted to associate professor at University of Virginia. And that carries strong presumption of continued employment. That's probably the way that it's going to work is people are going to hide in the weeds until they're about 38 or 40 years old and then come out and say it. And then they're going to get a lot of grief. But if enough people do that, it, things will change. Do you foresee a change in the way in which people be, are educated in this regard? For example, if you had people that were interested in an alternative perspective and understanding what you've shared with us, how the books are cooked and how the numbers are made to reflect something that isn't true, do you think it's valuable and are you interested and you think some of your colleagues who are like-minded would be interested in giving people, especially young people, book lists and, and things to read so that they can become truly educated, even if they're going through the university system. But if they don't go in prepared, they're very likely to be swayed. So do you see that as a potential model without necessarily being immediately successful? Yes and no. The problem is that our information technology and those who design the structures that we access information technology through seem to be in the business of restricting information they do not like. I have had tons of things that I've written or done videos on or whatever get flagged by so-called fact checkers. Facebook in particular is, is, is notorious on this. And they're not fact checkers. They're opinion checkers. And if their opinion doesn't agree with your opinions, which may be grounded in fact, you get flagged on the internet and your work gets very hard to access, for example, on Facebook and things like that. Mm -hmm. That's a problem that we have. And I don't have the wisdom to understand how to untie that Gorgian knot because on one hand you have private corporations, you know, selling things, platforms like Facebook. And on the other hand, you're, you're essentially calling for regulation of the information market. Andrea, I, I, if I knew how to do this, I wouldn't, you know, I'd, I wouldn't be talking on a podcast. I'd probably be head of some large communication company. I don't know how to do it. Right. But I guess what I'm saying no. here is you've already done a lot. And I'm hoping that you'll share with my listeners who are interested where to access the videos that you have done and the conversations you have been part of and the documentaries that utilized you in your expert capacity. Because I think when the average person understands the corruption in climate science, in financial markets, how wars have been conducted, how a flu or a virus can be weaponized into subjecting or subjugating a people, I think that information getting to people, and let's face it, a lot of people know more now than they did five years ago in terms of how various corrupt mechanisms are at play. I think then we hope for the innovation that you say is going to really solve these problems, but we don't know what it's going to look like, but the truth is important for this innovation to take place. Yeah. And what is something that is really to be fought is the censorship, particularly in the environmental area, that is being called for and being enforced by the big tech companies. That's just appalling. Fortunately, you know, the truth has a way of coming out. Sometimes you just have to look for it a little harder. Yep. I can give you an example that, that you and I are probably familiar with. Once upon a time, there was a rebel by the name of Matt Drudge who decided to 
go beyond the mainstream media and give people more information. And then Matt Drudge decided that he was going to start imposing his form of censorship on his platform. And it changed rather suddenly. And then lo and behold, what appears is Revolver. And Revolver has been breaking stories left and right. For example, on the January 6th mess, Mm -hmm. that what you read in the New York Times isn't what happened. Well, even the Times has come to agree with Revolver, by the way, uh, more and more on this now. Right. And I guess that's what I'm saying. I'm saying that you can't suppress the truth for too long, especially when you have people looking for it. So I've, I've got to wrap this up. But Pat, where can people go to hear more of what you are referencing and to find out more about your take on this issue? Well, you can go to uh, my think tank, the Competitive Enterprise Institute, which is www.cei.org, and you can plug my name in on that one. You can also, you know, I have a few books out there. The most recent one is Scientocracy. That covers larger areas in science. You can get that at Amazon or last one I did on climate science was called lukewarming, which is the way I view the world, by the way, which is, yes, it's getting warmer, but it's not burning up. It's kind of lukewarming. And it's, by the way, it's nice to know that we are creating a much greener planet by putting CO2 in the air. The greening of the earth is just astounding. You can read, read about these things in many books that I've written. Also just search carefully online and, you know, look at some of the scientists that have courage. I'll give you the name John Christie, Ryan Maui, M-A-U-E. I would include myself, but that would be self-serving. That's but okay. if you look around, you'll, you'll find them. And you'll have a lot of knowledge to arm yourself with when you get into public discussions. And that's what we need. We need to change the perception on this issue to be more truth-oriented rather than results-oriented. Exactly. Well, Pat, I appreciate you taking the time. I know that uh, your hands are in a lot of things right now, and I appreciate the fact that you could bring a truly scientific perspective to this whole discussion. Well, thank you. Uh, It was a lot of fun. I appreciate it, Andrea. Very good. Listeners, as always, you can contact us through our email out of the question podcast at gmail.com. We look forward to your comments on this podcast or any other topic, along with suggestions as to things you would like us to discuss. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.